0: The Passion Stories. Exploring passion, purpose and more. Welcome to episode two of the Passion Stories podcast with Emma Cole. In this episode, I speak to Sarah Rafty, a PhD student at the University of Cambridge, about her passion for demography. Sarah, you're doing a PhD at Corpus Christi College at Cambridge. What are you doing your PhD on?
1: Yes, so I am currently a third year PhD student here at Cambridge. I'm in the geography department, but I'd say I am an historical demographer. So my PhD itself focuses on the key demographic measure, infant mortality. And infant mortality is the probability that a child will die before reaching the age of one expresses a rate per 1,000 live births. And it's considered one of the most common ways of quantifying a country's state of overall health, as would something like life expectancy. But yeah, so my my PhD itself looks at the improvement of infant mortality in London from 1870 until 1930. At the turn of the 20th century, for some context, the infant mortality rate in London was sitting at around 140 infant deaths per 1,000 live births. And at the moment in the UK, it's 3.9 per 1,000 life births. So wow. at the time, in 1900, it was considerably higher. But over that time period, there was a huge change in society, in politics, in public health, in the economy. And we did see a huge decline in infant mortality over the latter part of my time period. So that is what I'm investigating. And why have you chosen that specific time period? From 1870 until 1900, you found a general decline in overall all-age mortality. So that is, people of all ages were less likely to die, mainly due to a decrease in infectious disease. Infant mortality really lagged behind that, and we're still not sure why that's the case. So it's good to have the lead-up period between 1870 and 1900 to see why it was still remaining constant. And then the, the first 30 years of the 20th century was when you saw a huge decline in infant mortality so it's covering the lead up to and the start of the infant mortality decline. I mean what brought you to infant mortality? How did you become interested in it? I was always interested in like since second year of undergraduate I did a module in medical geographies and I really enjoyed the historical aspect of infectious disease because it was a lot more exciting. <laughs> Mark <Yeah>. Barber pandemic <laughs> right now but in general infectious disease there was more going on in the UK in like the early 20th century. And then I got speaking to some historians at the London School of Tropical Medicine when I was doing my master's, and they spoke to me about infant mortality and how that was still something that was such a puzzle, and we yeah. didn't know why it declined or why it was so much later than other mortality declines. So then I got reading around that, did my master's dissertation on that, and then ended up applying for a PhD with this idea of infant mortality in London and using different methods to try and unpack the pattern seen within one like urban area as we know London is really really diverse so what it does provide is lots of different types of people within one urban area that you can directly compare with each other which is why London is so interesting to study so I think it was why did I do infant mortality I really was interested in historical demography and infant mortality is still a huge issue that we don't understand so it lent itself to further research
0: That is a brilliant way of getting into something. And so you mentioned the COVID pandemic. There's been quite a lot of media coverage on the challenges of measuring the demographic impact of COVID. Is this something that you've looked at as well as your PhD research?
1: Yes, the COVID pandemic has been absolutely horrendous, but equally it's been incredibly interesting. I teach health geographies to first and second year undergraduates and it's been a brilliant tool for like giving examples of some of the discussions we have in those supervisions. So sort of thinking about the social gradient in mortality and morbidity and how your environment affects your behaviours and various other things. And that the intersectionality between like race and class and gender, of course, and we're all seeing that play out in the COVID-19 pandemic. So
0: has COVID impacted or maybe changed your view on the importance of understanding population
1: dynamics? Yeah, I think what it has done has made me feel like that my skills actually are really very relevant (laughs) (laughs) or what I'm studying. Because sometimes I feel like I find my PhD very interesting, but I'm not entirely sure how it's useful perhaps to the wider world. But I think COVID and, you know, understanding the R number and things like that, that's something that I already knew. And it's shown how important demographers are to interpret things that are happening now. And I think it's made it very obvious to the whole population that it is actually very important.
0: Yeah, ah, oh, that's brilliant. And what do you think about situations, for example, like Japan, where they always say there's an ageing population, or I think Poland is currently in the news quite a lot, experience a birth rate decline or demographic decline.
1: What do you think of the stories like that? Ageing populations are one of the most pressing demographic issues at the moment, certainly in the context of Global North countries. What you find in these ageing populations is that you end up not having the economy or the resources to support the elderly.
0: Okay, and obviously Japan is quite a big one in terms of this topic. What's your impression of Japan?
1: So I find Japan really interesting. So I had the um, opportunity to go to Japan in 2018 as part of a mentoring scheme but then i also did a lot of traveling around it's such an interesting place and culture the food is absolutely delicious as well gosh. i think something that does play into this that we should touch on uh, is that culturally japan has quite traditional gender roles so there has been a movement of women who are choosing not to get married and not to have children because they don't want to or don't have the capacity to carry on their career and also take on all the housework and all of the cooking some of these women are literally marrying themselves as to not have to go into a traditional marriage, like in a more traditional sense. This, of course, is by no means a universal trend. And I think it is really important at this point to make sure we're like sensitive to Japanese culture. But equally, it's not something we can completely ignore in terms of demographic conversations. Yeah, definitely. But then in terms of Europe, we do also have a problem with falling birth rates somewhere like oh, you mentioned Poland, but somewhere else like Italy or Spain also have quite low birth rates. And I, don't, I don't know. You can like implement uh, policies to try and increase birth rates. Sometimes they're effective, sometimes they're not. But we might hit a situation where, even in the UK in a few years where it becomes more normal to be childless. Yeah. And what do you think about overpopulation
0: as an argument for why people shouldn't have children in terms of when you're looking at climate change and the environment? Because that's often used as a reason for why people don't want to have kids. How does that? sort of go into your research and your thinking
1: yeah so this is another really interesting part uh, like example of how demography is so important in so many different topics so uh, in my opinion the argument for overpopulation certainly within resources in terms of resources that the world has is really I don't know if the word colonial colonial is the right word to use but it's it certainly like it's a Western argument, and it's saying that those in the global, probably racialized as well, those in the global south are the ones that are overpopulating. Okay. This is because it's often focused on limiting the fertility of countries in the global south. Any sort of population control is something we should try to avoid almost entirely, in my opinion. At the time of my research, for example, there was a political want to control the fertility of the working classes who were seen to be outbreeding the middle and upper classes, and now there may be political want in some parties, in some circles, to control the fertility of the global South. You look at per capita, those in the West use far more energy than anywhere else. So I think you have to be really careful there to say that if we stopped having children or, you know, argued that overpopulation was the root cause of climate change, because I actually think we need to look at Western cultures and those huge yeah. global corporations that are the root of the issue, and that not actually at the individual level that Betty Next always had three kids. <laughs> I think that's interesting as well though, because in the, one of the recent David Attenborough documentaries, he did push overpopulation as like a key issue in climate change. And I thought that was quite dangerous. And so I love David Attenborough and I think the work he does is really useful and important, but the way that he used overpopulation as a root cause of climate change, I think it was quite problematic. Perhaps we could flip the focus of overpopulation here slightly there is an almost universal link between improved female education and decreasing fertility. So rather than using this potentially racist overpopulation argument, could we instead argue for increased investment in opportunities for women? So that's something to think about anyway.
0: Definitely. And do you think when people include COVID in their thoughts about having children, do Mm. you think the pandemic has had an impact on people's plans to have children or will have an impact? Because, you know, yes, of course, there's climate change, but also a pandemic doesn't exactly exude confidence in the future. Do you think it's going to have an impact on birth
1: rates? So interestingly enough, I actually got contacted last April about someone wanting me to do some freelance work for them on modelling a baby boom post the pandemic. Because their idea was Mm -hmm. that if people were at home, they were more likely to have sex with their partners and therefore more likely to have children. They thought there was going to be this baby boom. What we've actually seen thus far is the opposite of that, and that there's been a decline in, slight decline in births that's pretty common across Europe, and that is, we think, because of the economic uncertainty. So being in a position where you've lost your job or you're not yeah. sure whether you the rent or the mortgage on a house isn't exactly conducive to thinking, oh, yes, now is the right time to have a child. I think what will happen is we'll see the birth rates going down for as long as it continues, and then about a year after it's finished, we'll see a big boom in, in births again, as people are delaying those births. I'm not sure whether it will have an impact on people deciding whether or not to have children, mm-hmm. but I think it's certainly changing the time in which they'll have children.
0: So you're saying that there's going to be a delayed baby boom, but when you look a little bit further into the future, what do you think the population will look like? And is that something that demographers can project?
1: It's really difficult to do, particularly on like a national scale. Because there are so many different variables to take into account, I would think there's going to be some sort of baby boom that will last a couple of years, maybe five years. I don't know that for sure. It's so difficult to say, really. That's extremely interesting. Sorry, one other thing. Mm-hmm. That I will say. It will be very interesting in like a negative way to see how Brexit affects the population of the UK. One thing you've got to consider with population, as well as births and deaths, is migration. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, leaving the EU will have a have a negative effect is uh, in there'll be less people moving here and I think that will be another interesting aspect to think about.
0: What do you think in terms of how COVID might have impacted women because you've mentioned women before and how the issues in the period that you've chosen for your PhD are you seeing those same issues now like is this something that we can apply to today that
1: you're doing in your PhD? Yes. Yeah, so interestingly enough there's studies coming out that women are being more affected by the pandemic than men. Traditionally, women would take on the child-rearing responsibilities and men wouldn't. We found that during this pandemic, that is also what's happening at home. Even if both parents are working, the woman will take on the child-rearing responsibilities as well as their own work, and therefore their career or their work gets put on hold a little bit. There just seems to be a general consensus still that the man's job is more important than the woman's job. And I think I could link that back to my own research in terms of the fact that at the time, infant health was definitely the mother's responsibility. There was a lot of discussion at the time in politics around the fact that the working class mothers were not rearing their children properly. And that's why they had such high infant mortality. And they blame them for going out to work and maybe not being able to effectively breastfeed their children or having to give it to a wet nurse or not giving it enough attention. It was the mother's responsibility and it was the mother's fault if it went wrong.
0: So, do you think there are parallels that we can draw between the children doing well at their schoolwork and this being the mother's responsibility?
1: Yeah, I definitely think there are parallels there. I also think, in terms of politics, there are parallels. So, at the turn of the 20th century, um, infant mortality became like an actual problem because they weren't collecting data on it. They didn't know that necessarily it was a specific demographic problem that was happening. But at the time, they liked to blame the individual mother they like to put in campaigns or like schools for working mothers that would teach or educate these working mothers on how to rear their children, rather than perhaps investing money into the healthcare system, or investing money into sanitation of the roads or drinking water, which were more likely to be killing the infants and the mothers, any of the mothers behaviours, because of the nature of the infectious diseases that were causing the mortality at the time. And then I think, to draw like parallels between then and now, the government we currently have like to point fingers at individual behaviours and therefore the impact on COVID, particularly people of working class that can't stay at home or people that, from ethnic minorities typically get pointed the finger at when actually there's probably, a, though there is a broader governmental and policy issue on trying to control COVID, which they haven't done effectively. And I don't think they should be blaming the individual. But I'm also not surprised that that's happening. So what do you think of the government's handling of the
0: COVID crisis?
1: I think there's a really dangerous dichotomy that seems to have come out. Like you can have public health, or you can have the economy and you can't have both. That's just not true. And I think what we've done was too little, too late, not hard enough consistently for the whole year. So we're in a situation now where we were basically the same thing a year on. I think the only good thing that this government or we've done is the vaccine rollout. But even then, that's been organised by the NHS, like local NHS groups rather than the government. So, And as we move
0: forward out of what we hope, I guess, will be a post-COVID world, what would you like to see on the political agenda?
1: Obviously, we need to invest more in public health. And that's not just for my own future employment, but just in general, that we need to invest more in, in our NHS. We need to invest more in our public services. I think that's become quite obvious here. Typically, those countries with better state services have fared better that's not just in the covid pandemic but in general if you've got a more equal distribution of healthcare typically everyone's health improves versus an unequal means that everyone's health is worse so i'd put that really on the top of the agenda i think we also need to focus on climate change a lot more probably another obvious one and just sort of focusing on on equality as well and getting some policies through that really actually make a difference
0: On equality, do you think that there will ever be equality between genders, especially when we consider how the concept of gender is continuously evolving? How do you think that's going to impact your
1: studies as well? Oh, I want to say yes. I want to say that we will have equality one day. Looking at my own experience, I think I've always been a feminist. I'm working now towards what I would define myself as like an intersexual feminist, which then covers all genders, all classes, all races, all sexualities, striving for equality for everyone. But I think as a child, I was certainly a feminist, but didn't realise I was a feminist. So I would typically play or, or do all of the activities that were for the boys. So I played video games. I used to play with toy cars. I was... Always playing football, watching football. Like I was constantly in a full football kick from the age of four till eleven. And I read, recently found actually in lockdown when I was clearing out my room, I found a diary, um, and it was one of those ones that you had to like fill in certain sections. And it said, "What do you want to be when you're older?" And I had written down, "I want to play in the men's like underlined England football team, and then I want to manage the men's underlined a football team." Because I knew even from that age that in terms of respect and money, that men were going to be earning more. And I think because I was in those environments where I was typically like the only girl, I had to be strong and I had to be like, girls can do it too. So I think that brought me up to be quite a strong woman and a strong feminist. And I think it wasn't until my master's that I began reading more widely about feminism and the yeah, intersectional feminism. And then I think leading that into my PhD because I've got those ideas of feminism, I'm interested, therefore, in like, the controlling and, and politicisation of mothers and infant mortality in my work, if that makes sense.
0: No, that's super interesting. And obviously you're at Cambridge, which is an incredibly prestigious university. What's the female representation like?
1: So I don't know off the top of my head what the figures are. I can only anecdotally say that as you go up the academic pyramid, there's less and less female representatives or non-male representatives unfortunately I think being in a place like Cambridge has made me more aware of my gender because I think it is so prestigious and so traditional that it's still stuck in a lot of bad old ways so so at Corpus Christi in the, the dining hall you walk in there and there's only one portrait of a woman the rest of them are of men More often than not, you'll go in and you'll have, if you have a formal dinner there, when we were still having those, look at the high table and every single person will be a white man and able-bodied. So the first black master of an Oxbridge College was only elected in 2019, which is mad, but also almost not surprised Mm. because of how institutionally racist like a lot of academic institutions are, unfortunately. So I would say... There is definitely a more male representation in general across the board. But I think we've also got to consider the lack of people of colour as well and disabled academic as well as that. I've also got to acknowledge that I am in myself very privileged to be studying at Cambridge and I am white and I am a middle class. I am conscious of missing stories or being sort of whitewashing the history as well. I am involved in reading like modern geographies of health pieces as well. Something that, for example, that I was teaching most students the other week about was how if you are a black woman in the UK, you are five times more likely to die in childbirth than a white woman. And unpacking like why, why is that the case? And is um, that in 2021? That is now, yeah. Covid has also put that in the spotlight in terms of ethnicity, okay. because you are seeing a disproportionate number of BAME deaths compared to white, white deaths. In the uk
0: and as your work is historical are there limitations to what you can
1: find out so of course there are limitations i suppose by the nature of it being historical so i'm limited by what data is available to me i can't go back in time and and get that data again i cannot differentiate different infant mortalities by ethnicity at the time because i just don't have that data um, which is incredibly irritating but something unfortunate i can't solve
0: and I mean, you're doing this incredible PhD. Where do you want it to take you? Yes,
1: yeah, so if you'd asked me this question a year ago, I would have said pretty firmly that I wanted to stay in academia. And unfortunately, if you ask me now, that's probably not my answer, mainly due to the issues of, of funding in academia and and problems of fixed term short contracts and having to move around a lot. So I would say I would like to go into research and perhaps policy in public health. and I'd probably bring everything into like contemporary so i really enjoy the historical work but i think i have the skills to take that into the modern day
0: thank you sarah i feel honestly completely enlightened that was absolutely (laughs) fascinating and thank you so much for your time
1: no problem at all i've really enjoyed coming on the show i hope it's made some people perhaps more interested in demography and how important it is and then also the feminist aspect as that of that as well as ever increasingly important i think
0: You've been listening to the Passion Stories with Emma Cole. Look out for more episodes coming soon. Music by bensound.com